we're going to continue our series and end it today on men and women of the Bible, and we're going to concentrate on the person of Paul and his ministry. So turn with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. <clears throat> the title of the message is An Apostle for All Generations, Paul. An apostle for all generations. Paul is writing to Timothy when he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, verse 15, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet, for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. 17. Now, to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, help us as we study your word. Regarding Paul, there are two things about which I'm going to speak to you. One, his background, which he details here. And then secondly, his theology and his practice. Under theology and practice, there will be seven things that I concentrate on. One, <clears throat> his, his unwavering stand to make sure that he stood on the centrality of Christ, that that was the message he was going to present to everybody, that Jesus Christ should be the center of all that we do, and he's the center of all that is. Two, how important it was for us to recognize that righteousness is only attained by faith, not by doing, not by the law, but by faith. Three, the inclusion of the Gentiles that we who do not have a Jewish heritage actually were not an afterthought of God, but we were a forethought of God and that he wanted us in the beginning, yet he started with the Jews and the Jews thought because he started with them, they were not only first, but only. And he never intended for his message to only be for them. Fourth, he builds a church. Paul talks about the construction process and the architecture that is necessary to build a group of people that is called the church, not just a building in which they meet, but a people. Five, he disciples people. He believes that the church ought to be built on disciples, not just church membership. Six, he is gospelly focused rather than socially focused. And yet, even though he is gospelly focused rather than socially focused, number seven, he is socially engaged. Paul gives his, his testimony here to Timothy. And Timothy... Timothy undoubtedly knew his testimony because Timothy was his traveling companion. He had raised Timothy from a young man to be a competent minister. And as he's writing this letter to Timothy, Timothy has been left in Ephesus, a place where Paul started a church, left in Ephesus to pastor the people who are in Ephesus, of which we believe there were about 20,000. The church was fairly large. And Timothy was trying to work through all the difficulties of being a plant, meaning he was somebody who didn't help start, though he was with Paul when things began. 
but he was a young man at that time, and so nobody really, really recognized him as an authority. But now we're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 years later where Timothy is somewhere in his late 30s, early 40s, and he is the leader of the church as set in by Paul, but there are a bunch of other people who have much more gray hair. And so he's concerned about whether he's going to be respected and heard because he's junior to the people who are the elders of the congregation. And he's giving him instruction. And though Timothy undoubtedly knew Paul's testimony, there's something about putting it in, in, in print. There's something about pen to paper or fingers to pad that allows people to feel more concrete about what has been done. And so in this passage, he goes through his testimony, Paul does, to Timothy, to let Timothy know this is, this is what the mercy of God looks like. Let me remind you that there was nobody who lived his life in such a way as to be probably and most likely disqualified from what I'm presently doing other than me. Nobody who would be more disqualified than me from doing what I'm doing because of the way I lived. I was an aggressor, a violent aggressor. Paul, who was Saul before his name was changed, was there at the stoning of the first martyr of the church, Stephen, Acts chapter 7. It says that the people who were the executioners that, that picked up the stones, and we're, we're not talking about pebbles here, we're talking about rocks at least this big upon which they would lift and, and then put them on the person's head with force until they were dead. And they couldn't do that on their own. It wasn't a lynch mob if you will, they had to have authority given by somebody who was a representative from the government. Stoning was not a practice of the Romans because they believed in crucifixion for execution, but it was a practice of the Jews. And so there had to be a representative of Jewish government there. Saul, who would be Paul, was that representative. And they laid, the people who were the executioners, laid their cloaks at his feet, meaning you are giving us approval to do this, right? And thus they martyred Stephen. That wasn't the only person who suffered under Saul's violent aggression. Many people did, and he was on his way to a place called Damascus in order to carry out the same orders to the Christians that were in Damascus that were in Jerusalem. And on the way, Jesus shows up. Now, Jesus had risen from the dead long before this moment, years before this moment. Yet he appears to Saul and says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, I don't know who, who, who you are, Lord, who am, who am I persecuting? He said, Jesus. And I mean, a flood of regret and insight comes to this man. He's changed in an instant, and he repents from everything he's done and decides to worship Christ. Here we have a, a, a kind of a compilation, a summary of what that felt like. He says, I was the foremost of sinners because I persecuted the church, yet God decided to give me his grace so that he could show everybody else what mercy looked like. That nobody should be granted the privilege that I'm doing who did what I did, nobody. Yet God did it for me, therefore he's making me a trophy to for you to understand how he can do it for you. That's how mercy is distributed. That's what it looks like. The folks that we believe are the hardest to win get the greatest mercy. 
Are you listening to me? I mean, the folks that we believe are hardest to win, especially those who have hurt us the most, we don't want them to get, we don't want them to get mercy. Please give them a little bit of judgment. Teach them a lesson before they get saved. Please, 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 please. Aren't, aren't, you, glad, aren't you glad God doesn't do what you want? Because remember, somebody's asking him to do the same thing about you. Somebody's so mad at you that they want judgment to come down on you. And God is so merciful that it looks like he's permissive. It looks like he's neglecting righteousness in order to be kind to you. Our God is amazing. He is so good. And he saved Saul, who would later be Paul, and be the most effective apostle in the history of the world. When I say effective, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. We are still trying to figure out everything he was trying to say. He was so smart. He helped, under, under, he helped the church understand what it, was, what it was to look like to include the whole world into this message. He came up with concepts like body of Christ, things that we consider normative but were revolutionary, that the body of Christ could actually be represented by a group of people that we were to be what Jesus would be if he were on the planet. And that body is made up of mouths and eyes and ears and feet and hands. And, and no part is more important than another part. Though there might be more prominent parts, it doesn't mean that it's more important simply because it's prominent. That, the, that the, the pinky toe on the left foot is just as important as the mouth. And in fact, it's so important that we need to give that pinky a little bit more honor so that people understand how important it is. He came up with the concept that we are, we're the temple of the living God. Oh, boy, to Jewish people, they were thinking about their own temple, this building, but that we are it. Paul came up with analogies and metaphors. Hagar and Sarah, the wife of the bond and the free woman, I mean, he, he really worked it to try to make sure people could understand the difficult concepts in the Old Testament and how they come through the cross to the new. He was amazing. And... As a result of his life, we are still benefiting from everything that he did. His outreach to Gentiles, his penning of Scripture, though he didn't know it was, it was Scripture, he was just writing a letter to a church, his penning and what we understand as a canon of, of Scripture in the New Testament, we are all benefiting from that. He was the most effective Christian in the history of the world. Nobody has had greater impact than this man. Though there were people who may have had equal impact. Peter, outstanding saint, great pastor in Jerusalem. And for all of his slowness with respect to understanding what it meant to go out and reach the entire world, go into all the world and preach his gospel. And he, he, he heard that as meaning going to all the Jewish world. And so for the first 10 years of the church, the church was primarily Jewish. If, if a Gentile came in, it was by accident. Nobody was trying to reach him. Meaning, and, and uh, you may not know what the difference is. A Gentile is a person who does not have Jewish heritage. That is you. That's me. Some of you may be Jewish in here and accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's beautiful. But we were adopted in. You came in naturally. And our adoption is that which is inclusive of God's original plan because we all came from Adam. And he wants to redeem all of Adam. 
And so Paul was the guy who primarily was the spearhead on this. Yet Peter in Jerusalem got this insight about how the Gentiles needed to be included in this gospel message. And he was part of the process of helping the leaders in Jerusalem understand that the Gentiles are not an afterthought. They are God's intent. They're his focus, just like we are. And so he helped in the process. But even, even Peter kind of gives a nod to Paul and says in his own letter, meaning the letter that Peter wrote, that dude, when he talks, I don't even know what he's talking about. I mean, he's so smart, we're still trying to figure out what he's saying. And here we've got one of the apostles, the leader of the church, saying Paul speaks in difficult language. Nobody superseded this man in effectiveness as a Christian. And he becomes the example of anybody who's done something really horrible, that there's no sin that cannot be forgiven. Now, there's one thing that Jesus talks about, it blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But please understand, I, I, I'm dismissing that one because there are so few people who ever do that. I've, I've only known one in 38 years. So few people. And if you've done that, you're not here. Because blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means you've rejected everything that the Holy Spirit means. And the only reason people come to church is that the Holy Spirit draws you or convicts you. And so he's not working with you anymore. And so you have no reason to, to participate in the redemptive process of being a part of a people of God. So if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're not here. Nor are you listening on, on the podcast. You're not interested in this. It happens so rare that it's not even worth talking about. It is so unusual. Considering that kind of being omitted from the conversation for a minute, there is no other sin that is too great that it can't be forgiven. None. And we think people are really, really bad. Surely they can't get. Is Hitler in heaven? See? <laughs> I don't know. But if he repented before he died, however he died, how merciful is God? Paul became the trophy for being the worst, the foremost of sinners, the worst possible human being he could ever think of, and yet God saved him, and not only saved him, but put him in the ministry that he was trying to destroy. Wow. And now, now, now when Paul wrote his letters, generally speaking, he was dictating and somebody else was a scribe. There are some letters, like I think the letter to the Galatians, where he says, see with what large letters I'm writing with my own hand. And so he penned that one. But most of them, he was talking to somebody else who was writing what he was saying. And, and what we get from this is almost a, a sense of growing emotional attachment to what he's trying to convey, an anointing that's rising in his life as he begin, he's beginning to recount every reason that he shouldn't be saved, yet he is. And he said, it is a trustworthy statement that God came to save me, who was foremost, that he might make me a trophy of his grace. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, to him be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. When people, most people get really anointed, I mean, they get really inspired to, to, to you know, they feel God and they, they're trying to, to, to stay in the moment. Generally speaking, most people's emotions take over their intellect. And they don't become smarter, they actually become dumber. I didn't say they were dumb. 
They just don't become, they don't engage their brain in the moment to figure out, God, what are you doing for other people? It's mostly about me in those times. I feel them so much, and, and, and we, we click off our brain because we enjoy the feeling. Paul doesn't click off his brain. He becomes smarter when the anointing hits him. So smart that he makes his statement. This doxology, which is outstanding, now, re realizing what he's experienced, the mercy he's gotten, it now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. Can't run past those words without having some degree of, of awe. Because the word eternal and immortal are concepts that don't mix except in one person. See, the only one who is eternal is God. Eternity means this, that you have no beginning and no end. God is the one who created all things that are, but everything that is had a beginning. Mankind was created by God, Adam and Eve, and they had a beginning, and they were never intended to have an end. Adam ate, Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and so an end happened. They were supposed to be immortal. Immortal is you have a beginning, but no end. Their immortality was stopped by their disobedience. Sin cuts off life. Sin causes death. The wages of sin is death. God did not want man to experience permanent death. So he said, I'm going to fix this myself. I'm going to come down and figure out how to make it so that mankind can now retain or regain their immortality. We can never be eternal, but we can retain immortality by having eternal life given to us. And so, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And eternal life given to us makes us again immortal. We had a beginning whenever you were born, but you are supposed to never have an end. And this is the beauty of what heaven is like, is that we get to live with him forever. Really cool. But we are distinguished from him in that we all had a beginning. He is both eternal and immortal. How do those two things fit except that he is God incarnate? And this is the beauty of the incarnation, meaning who Christ is. That Jesus did not become, he did not give up his godness in order to become man. That he was actually God. And, and hear me, if you are God, you can't stop being God. Because you're eternal. I'm just laying out some principles. I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. But if you're God, you can't stop being God. Just like if you're a person, you can't stop being a person. So he was God always. Never had a beginning. He was eternal. Yet, he took on an immortal body. And that he entered into the earth to become a man and gave up many of the privileges of his godness without giving up the person of his godness. So he gave up the privilege of being omnipotent. He was no longer all-powerful. Now he was about as weak as you could get. Nothing more weak than a human baby needs more care than any other creature in the universe for the longest, like 37 years. He was omniscient. He knew everything. Now he needed his own creation to teach him what he inspired the Old Testament saints to write. 
He was omnipresent every place at once, not confined to a human body. He gave up many privileges, but he never gave up his person. He wasn't a 50-50 composite, half God, half man. No Hercules here. Y'all don't know Greek mythology. <laughs> Listen to me. There is no 50% anything when you talk about beings. Because if you are 50% human, you aren't human. I don't know what you are, but you aren't human if you're 50% human. You have to be 100% human to be human. And you have to be 100%. You can't be 50% God. Can't. You have to be either all God or you're not. So in order to be a God-man, you have to be 100% God and 100% man. Now, I know that fries all of your circuits in your brain. Your logic just goes, poo. You don't know what to do with that. Nonetheless true, though. Simply because we cannot comprehend it does not make it not true. Forgive my double negatives. Listen, when we come to conundrums like this, mysteries that cannot be, be plumbed with our intellect, it's not that we, we say, well, it can't be true, simply because we don't understand it. It's that we say, you're beyond me. You are bigger than me. And I like it that God is bigger than me. I don't turn off my brain. I use it till it can't be used anymore. And here Paul used his brain while he was in the middle of describing his own testimony with great emotion. Now to the king, eternal, immortal. In three or four words, he packed about three hours worth of theology. Because the only one who can be eternal and immortal is Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Paul was smart, really smart. And those of you who happen to be teenagers and think, I've got the internet, I don't need education. Please get your degree. Because generally speaking, God can do more with smarter people. Generally speaking, I would like it if he doesn't have to bypass all of your ignorance to do something. I mean, there's enough ignorance out there already. You don't have to add to it. He's already got to go past so much of what you don't know. Don't increase the difficulty. Become smart that he might use you in a different way than having to go, well, can't do that, so we'll have to go this direction. Paul was really smart, really smart. And anytime he felt the anointing, he leveraged that for other people's gain. Let's talk about his theology and his practice. First of all, he was very Christ-centered. Having Jesus as the center of everything was, was supreme on his list. It wasn't about just philosophy and making sure that my make sense moment is stronger than your make sense moment. It wasn't a debate opportunity. It was let me tell you who Jesus is. And that needs to be the central focus of our message, who Jesus is for humanity. In Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20, he talks about that he was the firstborn of creation and everything was made by him, for him, and through him. And all things are going to be his in the end because he did things that nobody has ever done. And when he says firstborn of creation, he's not referencing somehow that somehow he came into being when he, was entered in, when he entered into the womb of Mary. No, because he'd already made the statement to Timothy that he was eternal. What is he describing? He's describing Hebraic language 
Firstborn means you are the one that gets to inherit the things of the Father. And you get a double portion. You not only get what's coming to you that's yours, but you get to do now the Father's business. The firstborn always had the responsibility of carrying on the Father's business because he was the eldest. And if the Father was going to pass, he would be, the, obviously, the most responsible fastest to be able to carry it on. So he got a double portion. It didn't mean that the Father loved the firstborn more. It simply meant you were there first. And now you get what everybody else gets, plus a double portion, plus another portion, so you can carry on what I'm supposed to be, what I would have done if I were here. So Jesus carries on, the, his, his, his role was to carry on the Father's business while he was on the planet. He got a double portion, firstborn. Secondly, he was the firstborn of this kind of reality of human. Adam was not born. He was created. His creation was supposed to be immortal. He was never supposed to die, but he ate from the tree, and thus we have all been affected. Sin is not that which, which occurs. I'll say it this way. You do not become a sinner when you sin. When you sin, you prove you are a sinner because sin is that which is inherited from your grandpa, Adam, your grandma, Eve. There is a bent on the inside of you that goes this direction when God is trying to take you this direction. And this direction is called original sin. We are all born with it because Adam could only produce what he was. Apple trees produce apple trees. Lemon trees produce lemon trees. Sinners produce sinners. There is no way around that. There hasn't been born a person since Adam, from Adam, that has ever been declared innocent or perfect. Everybody has been born into sin. And when we sin, we prove that we are sons and daughters of Adam. So this genetic mess up, this soul misconfiguration, God wanted to fix. And so he allowed his son, who is eternal, to now be placed on the inside of, of Mary. And he became immortal in that he inherited a human body. And as a result of this kind of human body, he did not, because the, the, the godness was there, he did not inherit Adam's flaws, but only the part of Adam that God intended when God intended to create Adam. So he did not have a sinful nature. And as a result of not having a sinful nature... <laughs> he now could start all over and redo what Adam did. And this is why, why Paul calls Adam in Romans chapter 5 the second Adam. That when opportunities for him to sin came, he defeated every one of those moments in the enemy's hands to try to get him to sin. He won them. Adam blew it. Jesus was victorious. He was the firstborn that now could give us victory over sin. A new kind of life. Do you know victory is supposed to be your portion every day? And we have so many resources. We should never lose. We should never give in to sin. We have, we have a Bible. In whatever version you want. However you can get it. Audio listening. Electronic. Paper. However you want it, you can get it. We have podcasts where people are actually telling you how to live best and helping you. You have pastors that are assisting you. you there, there are small groups that you can go to. You can be discipled. 
You've got examples in the Bible of people who have been through everything you've been through, and either they failed, so they, they now become an example of what not to do, or they succeeded, and they become an example of what you can do. We've got so many resources. For us to fail is because we choose to. Plus, we have the Holy Spirit that enables us to live right every day. If we fail, it's not because the devil made me do it. It's because we, we choose to. <coughs> and failure should not be that which is ordinary for the believer. In fact, let me say this. That victory ought to be the, the standard, but nobody, nobody actually expects anybody to be perfect. We should strive for it. But I don't know anybody that has attained it. Paul never did. He said, I press on that I might know more in Philippians chapter 3. The more the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of the suffering, I haven't attained it yet, but I press on that I might get it. So he hadn't attained perfection. Nobody I know who has, and I don't think anybody will. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And, 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 and even though perfection may not be something that's attainable, consistency is. But most Christians, who won the Super Bowl last year? Come on, help me. New England, New England Patriots. They're the world champions. Um, I don't like them. I don't like them. And, 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 and it, it's really, they're in competition for the bottom rung of the ladder of affirmation for me with the Dallas Cowboys. Those two are right there at the bottom. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you very much. And, and listen, don't, don't be mad at Cowboy fans. They were born that way. They can't help it. Um, no apology there. I, I, I'm not repenting. You're waiting for something. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. I'm not. But anybody know how many games the, the New England Patriots lost last year? Nobody even cares. Because they want so much. Is there anything about your life that, that can be said like that about you? You have so much victory. You have progressed the kingdom in so many phenomenal ways in your life. You have seen people delivered from all kinds of things. You've seen them born again. You've established orphanages. You've helped people. You've seen your community rally around the purposes of people who are, are, are weak or, or can't defend themselves. You have assisted the, the, the weak in becoming stronger. Is there anything about your life that says there's so much victory that your failures just don't matter? Nobody even remembers them. It's rare to find a Christian that is 11 and 5. Rare. It's more often that I find a Christian like, like the Cleveland Browns 217 team. They were all in 16. They didn't win a game all year. Didn't win a game all year. Those, that sadly is most Christians. And because, and I, I can tell where a Christian is, because when, um, <laughs> when they don't sin, they get really happy. <laughs> we are, they are so used to losing that they're happy about a tie. See, a tie is when you, you don't advance, you don't win anything for God, 
but you also don't lose. You didn't blow it. Thank you, Lord, I didn't get drunk last night. <laughs> Hallelujah. Oh, it wasn't like last weekend. I have victory now. And you are just rejoicing over the fact that you didn't blow it like you did before. Now, let me say this. I'm happy you didn't blow it like you did before. But there's no victory in that. You tied. You tied. You just now don't suffer the consequences of your misdeeds. There's no advancement of the kingdom. That's how messed up we are that we are really happy when we don't blow it. We need to get to the place where we are really happy only about the progress, not just about the lack of regression. When we think about who Jesus is, firstborn of the dead, he lived a life that was sinless. And he was tempted in every way just like us. His flesh went through the same kinds of things just like we did. Except his was more intense when he was tempted by the enemy after a 40-day fast. And this is a man who, you know, he, he wasn't ever trying to qualify for the greatest loser, the biggest loser. He didn't have a weight problem. So we're talking about a man who started a fast at probably 5'7", 155 pounds, and went 40 days. After 40 days, your body is hungry, and it's not like the kind of hungry where you're hungry at lunch. It's the kind of hunger where your body is saying, I'm dying if you don't give me food. You've eaten through all of your fat reserves. Eat, you've eaten your muscle. And now all that's left is your organs. That's that kind of hunger. And the enemy comes to him on the 40th day when he's that hungry and says, turn that stone to bread. And Jesus musters the strength of his soul and everything he has learned about who God is and says, Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He could have done it. And there would have been nothing innately wrong with turning the stone into bread because he was hungry and he had completed his fast. But there's a lot wrong with, with the place from which the inspiration comes. And he said, I'm not doing a thing you tell me to do. I only do what I see the Father do. I only follow what he says. He said no, even when he had a privilege. He then transfers that kind of firstborn victory to us. Where Adam transferred all of his problems and all of his disobedience, Jesus can transfer all of his victory to us. Firstborn that way. <sighs> Paul is central in his focus about who Jesus is. And he doesn't get off that point. He just stays on it over and over and over and over and over. Secondly, with respect to theology... He's really strong in the idea of making sure that our lives are based on the righteousness that comes by faith, not by law. The law gives us two things, an understanding of what right looks like in terms of conduct and an understanding of what wrong looks like when we disobey. It cannot justify us before God because we've done wrong and that wrong needs to be paid for. And nothing that you do right can fix your wrongs. There's nothing you can do right to fix any of your wrongs. We would think somebody a little nuts if they knocked off a 7-Eleven on Saturday and went to the, the assisted living center on Sunday and said, well, this will atone for everything I did on Saturday. I'm serving these people. They need help. Judge, you'll let me off of that, won't you? Bro, you knocked off a 7-Eleven. You think doing that's going to fix that? 
We would think, but that's what we believe doing right is going to do for us. That if we can go ahead and do enough right, we can, we can wipe out all of our wrongs. Can't happen. We are guilty and deserving of punishment. Paul says, I don't derive righteousness on the basis of the law. Another version of his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, where he's talking about, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin. With respect to the law, I was blameless. And he wasn't talking about that he had never done anything wrong. He's saying that when I did wrong, I offered the appropriate sacrifice in order to make it right. Nobody could confuse him as being somebody who was still guilty for having done wrong. And he said, if anybody could be declared righteous on the basis of the law, it would be me. But I was not even right. I had done right, but I wasn't right. Therefore, I derived my righteousness only on the basis of faith, which is this. That Jesus Christ took my punishment, that which I rightly deserved, he took my place. And as a result of him taking my place and me then applying my faith to what he did for me, I then get his righteousness delivered to me. He makes a, a transference that doesn't make any sense, but I'm the beneficiary of it and I love it. I now have been declared righteous because my sins have been atoned for by him and that he had never sinned. Therefore, he could take all of humanity's punishment on him because he deserved no punishment. He could take ours. And as a result of taking ours, we now don't deserve any. And not only did he take our punishment, he then transferred the power of his life to us so we can live right. And in doing so, not only can we live right, we can be right. So the righteousness that we need to stand before God because it's not enough to stand before God just being innocent. Not enough. The fact that he died for our sin now makes us innocent. But he transferred his righteousness and this is why he had to live right for so long and develop a track record of, of, of perfect victory because then he could transfer that to us and say, I am declaring them righteous not just innocent, but righteous in that they take on the life that I lived. Oh, it's powerful. Paul said, that's the righteousness by which I can be made righteous, not as a result of my deeds. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't do right. But it does mean that we as sinners are worthy of, of, of judgment, and he took it for us. Now, when it comes to the idea of, of doing right, it's really important that you understand how messed up we are and sometimes we don't even know what right is unless the law tells us. Now, we understand what the Ten Commandments are because we've heard them so much, but put yourself in the position of a people coming out of Egypt that have no idea what it looks like to be a contiguous community that lives the way they should and honors God. They don't have a clue. There's a thing on the Internet called Unnecessary Instructions. I downloaded it. And in these 10 unnecessary instructions, and there are many more, but they just had 10 there. Uh, one of them was on a Rowena iron, a little tag that you see on the cord, said this, uh, do not use iron with clothes on. <laughs> you know why they had to, to put that on there, right? You needed to be told that? Are you kidding me? On a package of peanuts that were given to people on the plane, on the back it said, warning, contains nuts. <laughs> you, you had to be told that? On a toaster. On a toaster. It said, do not use underwater. <laughs> ah, ah, what was somebody thinking? 
How about this? Honor your mother and father that your days may be long on the earth and that it might go well with you. You got to be told that? Do not murder. You got to be told that? Do not commit adultery. You got to be told that? I venerate the Ten Commandments. They are amazing. They work for any people at any time, at any place. But let's put it in perspective. Mankind was so messed up that we had to be given unnecessary instructions. So we can't be fixed by the law. The law simply tells us what we shouldn't do and what happens when we do it wrong and what best behavior looks like because we can't even figure it out. Paul said, I can't be justified by it. The only way I can be justified is by faith in Christ. Thirdly, he was interested in making sure the Gentiles were included in this thing. Gentiles, if you don't know what they are, they are people that do not have a Jewish heritage naturally. That's mostly us. There may be some wonderful Jewish believers in here, but for the most part, all of us are Gentiles. And Paul did it so well. He did it so well that now we have to figure out how to go reach the Jews. Because 99.9% of the church is Gentile. And most of the church at that time in the first century didn't think we should be included at all. It started with a Jewish group of people in Jerusalem, in the promised land, with a, with a Messiah who was Jewish. And they all thought, well, this is a Jewish thing. No, 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 no. That was a Jewish start, not a Jewish thing. God always thought about the entire world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so Paul was the, the point of the spear with respect to us coming into the kingdom. He reached the Gentiles. Um, Amazing. Thank you, Paul. Fourthly, he believed in building the church. The church was not just a building. It was a group of people, and he had architecture. It said in 1 Corinthians that he was a guy who had a, had a, had a solid foundation. He was a wise master builder. And with respect to what it meant to include the Gentiles, you talk about a complicated mix. He, he speaks of it in, in, in Ephesians chapter 3, that he was given this mystery about the inclusion of the Gentiles, and it was hidden from many, but he was given it. And now they could, they could inherit the things of God. And the architecture that he put together in order to make Jews and Gentiles work in the same room was astounding. Everybody else thought, this will never work. We need to have, if there's going to be a Gentile church, they need to meet opposite. They need to meet over there by themselves, and the Jews need to meet over here. Because what are we going to do when we have a potluck dinner? <laughs> Ours is kosher. They're bringing lobster and ribs. And we want to eat it, but we can't. How do we mix? We're nothing like each other. Paul had prescriptions that allowed them to come, to come together and break down the dividing wall between the two and make the two one. He believed in building church. He said, I'm a wise master builder. Everybody else is building on the foundation that I'm laying. Be careful, 1 Corinthians 3, how you build. And we are doing everything we possibly can to build according to the pattern that we find in Scripture. We're not sociologically motivated. We're not trendy in our orientation. We also aren't archaic. We're trying to stay on point and be relevant. Using the pillars that we find in Scripture the flooring that we find in Scripture, the windows that we find in Scripture, the mandate that we find in Scripture in every way to build a church that glorifies God because Paul has the best architecture. Fourth, he, fifth, he believed in disciple-making. He had Timothy. He was writing this letter to his son, Timothy. And it wasn't his natural son again. It was a son he had won to the Lord or trained in God. 
And he called him his boy. He said, I have no one of kindred spirit like Timothy. He had Titus. He had Epaphroditus. He had a bunch of folk that he believed should be folk, people who inherited that which he gave. Not just people who would follow him and serve him, but people he served to become great. Discipling. And you need to be discipled. We provide discipleship opportunities here. And discipleship, even though this is a pulpit that is designed around discipleship, making you a better believer, a follower of Christ, it's not the only place where you need to receive instruction. You need to go to small groups. You need to figure out how in the world to get a part of all that we're doing as much as you can so that you can grow and let somebody else's progress be a leverage for yours. That's all discipleship is, is letting somebody else who's been there before knows more than you leverage their gain for your progress. Otherwise, you just wind up reinventing the wheel all the time. And generally speaking, that's hard because you don't understand your Bible as much as you should. Discipleship. Paul believed in that. He also believed, number six, that it's important to be gospel-focused rather than socially uh, 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 concentrating. Now, it doesn't mean he wasn't socially engaged. We're going to get to that in a minute. But he said to the Corinthians in chapter 2 of, of, of 1 Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. This was a man who concentrated on the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the greatest force of change in the history of the world. There's nothing more powerful. Nothing. Political regimes rise and fall. Philosophical thoughts rise and fall. The gospel changes hearts. Laws change actions, and most of the time, not well. People keep breaking it. They find a way around it. The gospel changes hearts, and the church is supposed to be the institution that brings the message of healing to the world that nobody else has. And sometimes we are more concentrated on social activism than we are on gospel presentation. Now, I'm all for it. If you happen to work in the political arena, all for it. Do what you do. If you are involved in a socially active group, I'm not mad at you. I think great, wonderful. Just make sure that all you do is biblically based so you're not tearing down that which you're trying to construct in your own personal life. So I'm, I think it's good. But, but make sure when you go to be a cultural warrior that you take Jesus with you. Otherwise, you will make enemies with people who are on the other side. You may not be somebody who considers them your enemy, but they will consider you theirs because they feel like you're against them. And you've got to be careful to distinguish your agenda from your gospel. Are you listening to me? Because you are a Christian before you are anything else. You represent God before you represent a political party. You don't leave your Christianity at home. You don't leave your witness at home. You make sure you lead with it. Rather than having it have to follow up and people say, oh, you, you, boy, you, you don't act like one. Paul led with the gospel all the time, but he didn't neglect social agendas. And so he was a champion for women. <laughs> the things that we look at in Scripture and say, well, Paul was real restrictive. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and see the things that he asked for women to do in order for them to speak in the church, he also said there are things that men should do for them to speak in the church. Equally restrictive. But he wasn't trying to be restrictive to either one of them. That's just a mindset we have. He was trying to say, I'm trying to promote the best way for you all to communicate. Because a woman can actually pray and prophesy in church. Do you know most people thought, nuh-uh. Uh-uh, I ain't letting no woman up in here. 
So misogynistic was the church and the culture. Paul was revolutionary. He writes to the, the Romans in, in chapter 16. He's given a bunch of salutations in there, byes, hellos to friends. He's also got some relatives in Rome. And he says, greet Junia, who is an apostle in the Lord. In Greek, just like in Spanish or Portuguese, if you end it in an A, it's feminine. Did he say Junia was an apostle? Mm. Mm. Now, there are a bunch of people who look at that and try to rework it and go to the original text and see what in the world he couldn't have. But there's no way unless you just want to change it yourself to fit your own idea of what you want God to say. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 9 through 15. I do not allow a woman to teach her of authority over a man. Huh. Timothy was in Ephesus, the same place where Paul was writing in Ephesians chapter 5 about how men and women ought to do marriage. The word gune in the Greek is a word for women or wife. And the only way you can tell the difference in how it should be translated is the context. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, when it says, I do not allow a woman to have authority or, or speak uh, to a husband in a way that's disrespectful, to a man that's disrespectful, that passage, had, there's no reference at all to congregational meeting. None. But there is a reference to family in that at the very end of it says, and a woman shall be saved through childbirth. Well, what does childbirth have to do with a congregational meeting? So when I look at that passage, I say, well, this probably is about marriage more than congregational meetings because he's talking about family at the end. And if it's about marriage, it fits with what he said over in Ephesians chapter 5 because Timothy happens to be in Ephesus. And the problem that they had in Ephesus was that the temple of Diana was there. And all these women thought they were better than men. It was turned in Ephesus where the women thought, oh, our goddess is queen of Ephesus and she empowers me and you need to listen to what I got to say. It's, it's as equally improper for a woman to have that kind of subjugative attitude to a man as it is for a man to a woman. You're going to go back and re-listen to this and get what I'm saying and be really happy. <laughs> Meaning that respect needs to be given all the time to everybody. And nobody ever needs to be subjugated. If you're going to walk with somebody, all of us are going to have to submit to one another's wisdom and understanding de depending upon whether they're right or they have a strength that I don't. It's equally submissive. Yet, there's always somebody in the marriage who has to have the final say. So the buck stops with the man. But that doesn't mean that he is in charge of everything all the time. Just ask my wife. <laughs> God, have mercy. Paul was revolutionary with respect to slavery. Everybody did slavery. Everybody in the world did slavery. I'm not justifying it. I'm just reporting on history. Everybody. Folks in Africa did slavery. Everybody did. It was the way economies were built. Paul says, in a Roman context, to a Roman colony called Corinth, the Roman city, in chapter 7, if you are a slave, seek your freedom. Do you know that that was treasonous? You could be crucified for that. And many of the people in Corinth who were elders in the church, leaders, read that. And the whole letter was supposed to be read to the church. They're, they're saying if, if they got slaves, don't read that part. Don't read that part. Boy, he was radical. Now you have to understand something. People look at the Old Testament and they say, wait a minute now, in the Old Testament, God has regulations for slavery. He allowed it. 
Yes, there's a thing called progressive revelation. And then there's a thing that's called static revelation. Progressive revelation says that God allows for information to be given to people in a way that allows him to grow with the truth. Static revelation is, I said it, I meant it, it's not going not to change. Same information. Mankind is so messed up that sometimes God just had to say, I got to work with who they are. I, I, can't, I can't just blast them for everything. I got to work with who they are. So we're going to go ahead and make regulations around this horrible institution, and I'll figure it out later. With respect to the idea of what it means to, to, to talk about homosexuality, that is a static revelation. It's condemned in the old and condemned in the new. Slavery, allowed in the old, and then really discouraged in the new. In fact, Paul has a whole letter that he wrote to Philemon saying, release your slave. A whole letter about releasing your slave. He was radical, yet he didn't make his entire ministry about abolition. He focused on the gospel. So we focus on this message because he said this. I don't have it in scripture, but this is what I think went through his brain. I need, if I'm going to die for something, I need to die for this message because if I can preach this message, I can change hearts. And if hearts can change according to the gospel, then we can eradicate all these other ills in society. But if I preach just about slavery, which is wrong, because Paul didn't have a slave. He had sons. If I preach about slavery, I'll die here and, I'll, and everybody will miss the message of the gospel. And I'm primarily a gospel presenter. I have a lot of things I'd like to say about a lot of stuff. And I believe I'm right about a lot of stuff. But I'm not going to use this pulpit to push an agenda other than this message is the truth. Are you listening to me? I'm going to preach the gospel more than I say anything else about anything else. Unapologetically. Because this message changes hearts, which changes society. Paul was socially engaged, so we need to be. Homosexuality is improper, it's wrong. It doesn't mean, though, we aren't compassionate and loving to the people who are engaged, care about them deeply. And, and reality is, everybody's just looking for somebody to love them. Hey, Matt, I'm not trying to say you're destroying my world, you wicked setters. <laughs> Nothing about me is like that. Saying, I love you, care for you. Same-sex marriage, inappropriate, wrong. God had a man and a woman. But we've had same-sex couples in our church. Sitting for two years, listening to the message, we loved them, cared for them. Said, you're wrong. We don't agree with you at all. But we're not going to stop you from listening to the truth. They brought their children in. We educated them every day about who Jesus was. Which sin don't you like the most? I mean, have we categorized sin to such a degree that now we think somebody is really a worse sinner than me? Your selfishness is just as bad as somebody else's thing that you like the worst. Abortion. Not good. And if you've had one, all we want to do is pray for you and help you. But the church ought to be the organization that stands up for those who cannot speak. It's a life. And if you are pregnant, we want to help you. My wife and I adopted, and we adopted from a mother who was going to abort her child. We wanted to be a help, and our daughter is 26 years old now. We love her. Obviously, doesn't look anything like us. 
She's white. But she became a part of our family and we loved her like our own. We understand what it means to be in a difficult situation. But sin has so corrupted the soul that somehow a mother actually believes that it's not the best thing for her to sacrifice for the benefit of her child. And everything about motherhood is that. She believes it's more important sometimes to have the child sacrifice for her benefit. And I know it's hard. And everybody looks at me and says, well, you're a man. You're, you're, you're misogynistic, misogynistic in your orientation. I get it. And there's no way I can speak about this without being characterized that way. But does that mean I need to withhold truth because I'll be perceived as being intolerant? No, I can't. Abortion is wrong. Wrong. Transgender things. We're all trying to figure out who we are. Aren't we? I mean, we look in the mirror and we say, okay, I don't like who you are. Who are you really? So I'm, I'm not mad at people who are trying to figure it out. But it doesn't make it any less right. There are two genders. XX, XY. Male, female. That's it. We can make all the ones in the middle if we want and create. Uh, it, society does what it wants to do. But if you want to be biblical, you want to fall into, into place where God has set the parameters. Those are it. And when he, when he invades somebody's life for the good, he begins to develop their identity so that they can understand what their XX looks like, what it's supposed to be, and what their XY looks like and what it's supposed to be. And regardless of the changes that they put outwardly, they still have the same DNA. Can't change that. These are things that we don't need to neglect, but we don't need to use it as the thing we lead with. We lead with the gospel. So don't think I'm going to talk about this every week. We're not that church. We're the church that believes in the Bible every day, all day, but we believe that the gospel ought to lead that which we say on a regular basis. And we are not going to back off from that, even though there may be a social issue that comes to the fore every week. You're still going to hear the good message that, that, that Jesus Christ gave here about what it means to repent and give your life to Christ.